0: Welcome to the Finding Gravitas podcast brought to you by Gravitas Detroit. Looking to become a more authentic leader? Finding Gravitas is the podcast for you. Gravitas is the ultimate leadership quality that draws people in. It's an irresistible force encompassing all the traits of authentic leadership. Join your podcast host, Jan Griffiths, that passionate rebellious farmer's daughter from Wales entrepreneur, leadership coach, keynote speaker, one of the top 100 leading women in the automotive industry, as she interviews some of the finest leadership minds in the quest for Gravitas.
1: We're
2: going back to work. That's right. Many of the states are lifting the stay-at-home orders, and we're starting to think about what life in the new normal could look like and feel like. The question is this, what have we learned from this crisis? We've learned to live from home with the whole family being home at the same time. We've learned to work from home. We've learned many different ways of doing things because of our lives have been turned inside out and upside down. But what have we really learned about how we lead our own lives and how we lead others moving forward? I could think of no better person to help us explore this topic than a man who has lived his life in two parts, before a crisis and after a crisis. That crisis was the plane that landed in the Hudson known as the Miracle on the Hudson. And that guy is Dave Sanderson, the last passenger on that plane. Dave was your typical corporate sales manager going home after a business trip. We'll talk about his life before and after January the 15th, 2009, and what that has done to him, how that has changed him. We'll explore the leadership experiences that he went through on the plane that day and then after. Dave was the director of security for Tony Robbins, and he now runs his own business, Dave Sanderson Enterprises. He is a global well-known leadership speaker, a true inspiration, and definitely a survivor. So please welcome to the show, Dave
1: Sanderson. Uh, I am truly excited to be here with you today, Jan. Thank you so much for having me.
2: My normal question to the guests is simply this, what's your story? But I have to ask you that question in a slightly different way, because it is quite a story indeed. So my question is this, Dave Sanderson, what is your story before and after January 15th, 2009?
1: Well, there are definitely two different uh, versions of what happened uh, for me in my life. So before Jan- January 15, 2009, I had a 25-year career in sales, top producer, wife, four kids, trying to do the right thing. Trying to, I actually was modeling my dad, right? I'd go out, earn the income, bring it home, have my family have a better life for themselves. Um, Travel was consistent on I me. Mean, I was on the road probably three nights a week sometimes four nights a week, trying to do what I thought was the right thing to do. Fathers are supposed to provide for the families. Um, And so for for 25 years, I did that. I missed a lot of things with my kids because I was focused on really driving income so they could have what they needed in life. Um, And that was pretty much my MO since about 1986 till 2009. Uh, You know, got married. Right? And did the whole thing with that with four kids. But then uh, January 15, 2009, that sort of everything started flipping. And a lot of things were coming to light that candidly um, I should have seen earlier in my life. But I think sometimes you need some, something like this to sort of wake you up and sort of give you a perspective. And so January 15, 2009 is when I survived the plane crash known as the Miracle on the Hudson. And I wasn't supposed to be on the plane. I was scheduled to be on a 5 o'clock flight. I had a first-class seat because I travel so much. So I was, you know, I I gave up the first-class seat, which, candidly, Janice, that was a big deal I for know. Me. I can relate. Uh, you <laughs> know, I, I mean, yeah. I mean I, I'm a big guy. I started getting used to the first class. And But, you know, I wanted to get home early, right? So, but, um, and I didn't get, get, an, get, get an exit row. So I, I couldn't even negotiate my way up on that flight because I was one of the last people to get seats because I basically called the travel agent to work with her. So, um, you know, nothing unusual about that day. If you're, if you live up in the Northeast, and that's sort in New York City, LaGuardia, it's must be cold. It was 11 degrees that day. It was snowing. No big deal. That's right. Northeast, you know, and the flight was delayed because of planes were backed up because of weather. No big deal. So nothing extraordinary up to the point, even to the point where I was on the plane until about 16, 70 seconds after. And then the whole life shifted. That's, that's, that was the second and the actual moment and things started to shift, but that's when you heard the explosion. You knew something had happened. But you know, you fly so often, and you flew often. Well, probably still fly. I'd still fly. You know, you fly so often, things happen on the plane. So it's like, okay, you know, if we we'll go back to the airport, don't get your knickers and you know, all bent up over it, right? Because some things happen. But then all of a sudden, you start banking a different way. It's like, okay, I don't know this route. Um And all of a sudden, you look out, and all of a sudden, you see fire coming out from underneath the wings Like, okay, something happened. But you know, we got another engine. No big deal. But I think, tell people, I think that was one of the most extraordinary parts of the story that doesn't get told a lot because both engines got hit simultaneously, uh, as we know now. Uh, and I think, I truly believe, Jen, I tell people this. And I said this on many, many um, interviews. I think if we would have heard bang, bang, people would've immediately would have thought terrorist attack. You're in New York, plane going up, going towards Manhattan, but you heard bang. So people thought, okay we have other engines saving grace that doesn't get talked about a lot but uh, so even after that um it's like okay we're going back to LaGuardia but as you we are banking I didn't see LaGuardia and all of a sudden looking out you're seeing things like the New York skyline eye level and all of a sudden you're seeing a bridge coming up it's like never seen a bridge like that before and it's getting big it's like uh, it's like in that movie Apollo 13 the, the earth's getting big in the window right it's like things are getting big all of a sudden and things that things have to take place and, and all of a sudden you did get over the bridge, but now you're heading straight for the water and you because there's no other option. I mean, the crew did a fabulous job that day and I give them all the credit. But now we're heading to the water and that's the moment you're thinking, I may not come back. And I think most people on that plane had that initial thought. It's like, you know what? You don't ever see a plane crash and it ends up well, especially one that goes into the water. Because the only thing that I remember Jan for plane crashing in the water is when they hit the tip of the wing and he started toppling and and somebody told me in fact you know i was with tony robbins shortly afterwards and he was even talking about you know this could have been a bigger thing because just think of that thing would have hit a tip and start toppling into into manhattan rush oh
2: yes right yeah
1: or just the opposite toppling into newark and -hmm. rush out now you have something that's bigger than anything has ever really happened like that but fortunately that didn't happen but now you're in the water so we talk about two parts. There's two parts. We got down. Yeah, we made, we made it and we survived. And now, you're in a sinking plane in 36-degree water. And I'm in 15A, which means I'm towards the back of the plane. I'm not in front of the plane like I was scheduled to be. I'm in the back of the plane. So if you, uh, if you ever saw the side photo of the plane, most people have seen the photo head-on because that's the famous picture. First picture was a head-on picture. I show people in the side picture when the plane's like this where the back of the plane's in the water and about chest leap in the water. So that's when your leadership really starts stepping up because now you get to think in your personal leadership skills. Now, on the way down, you couldn't really control anything, but now you can control yourself, right? So now I tell people, this is when personal leadership comes to the forefront because now you have to make decisions and take action quickly. But you don't have that many resources to make decisions on. Sort of like we're in now. I mean, there's a lot of information coming up, but we got to make decisions pretty quick now. This world is changing every 15 minutes. That day it was changing every minute. So I had to make the decisions on basically a minute to minute basis. Do I do this? Do I do this? Such as, you know, when I got to the aisle, my decision initially was just to get out of the plane, go up and get out. But then I heard my mom start talking to me in my head. What she said to me is, if you do the right thing, God will take care of you, which made me make another decision. And and after about the last three or four years, I started thinking about what she said. And it was like, she didn't say do the right thing. She said, if you do the right thing, which gives you the connotation, you make the decision. And leaders have to make decisions. Two of the two key tenets, as you know, of leadership, especially personal leadership, is being resourceful and the ability to make decisions quickly. So I had to make decisions. So that's when I made decided to go towards the back of the plane to see if anybody needed help. Because at that point, my thought process was, okay, I'm alive. You know, yes, water's coming in, but I'm alive. Does anybody else need help? So I went towards the back of the plane, got behind everybody else. And back of the plane, I was about chest leap of water, chest waist level deep, depending on where part of the plane you're in. So now you're chest leak water, 36 degree water, and you're making it out. So there's decisions having to come left and right. So do I go all the way up? First light, I'm out of here. So, you know, Decisions were being made, like every moment had to be made a different decision. But now you chunk chunking, now I'm just going to get out of the plane, you get on the wing, but there's no room on the boat and the wing. So what decision do you make now? Do you force yourself out or do you sort of hang back? And the reason I hang back was two different reasons. Number one, there was no room on the wing of the boat. But, but the second thing was, at least in the plane, I had leverage because there was a picture taken of me that I was hold. I had the leverage to hold on to that, to the inside the plane while I was holding on to the lifeboat. So I had leverage at that point. At least I was waist deep in the water, not just leap. So I could at least have, have functions up, up, up above, at least to my hands. And the boat was floating out into the river and they were yelling, hold on, hold on. So part of leadership is you got to step up and just, you know, take control. And say, you know what, I got to do it. And so I held on to the lifeboat, waist deep in 36 degree water for seven minutes inside of a sinking plane. So that decision was intentional once I heard hold on, hold on, but it wasn't, didn't even come to my mind initially. But now, all right, you're in the plane. It's something that you've seen in business meetings before, and I'm sure you have, where you're in a business meeting and all of a sudden someone asks somebody a question and they freeze. They don't know what to do. And that's what happened. I saw a lady who didn't know what to do. She was standing in the middle of the way she didn't know what to do, so she didn't do nothing. And I tell people one of the things you realize and learn is sometimes you do nothing is a very dangerous situation because now you got people trying to get around you, right? Things are going down really quickly. You got you got to move. There's there's no room for throws right now. Make a decision, right? So that's when I yelled at her because one of the things I learned in my time with Tony is how to break people's states, and how you do that is do something radical to get their attention. So I just started yelling at this lady, and she's looking at me like, "Who's this old guy yelling at?" Me? It's like you know. And all of a sudden, somebody else took took her hand and got her off the wing. People walked on the wing, so that was intentional. People said, well, "Why would you yell at a lady in the middle?" I said, "Because she had to move." I mean, it's no—I mean, very candid. Sometimes there's no time to be really nice. And say, "But, ma'am, would you move my moving?" You just got to go. Especially when it's life and death, and right now it's life and death. In this world, this this thing that's going on right now. So, some people are in that state that you got to take action, right? And there's no room for people to wait around. I said, well, let's sit around for 14 days and figure things out. Sometimes you just got to go. And that was a go moment for me. So, you know, that got done, but now I'm still in the plane. And it's sinking. So what's the next decision? Well, I got to get the heck out of here, right? And, but I said, what's well, holding on to the boat? Until I felt the plane shift. And then I found out later, because so well, the one of the rescue boats, it was a tugboat hit the front of the plane as they were backing out and shook the plane. And I felt water come up my back. And I'm like, Titanic, I got to get out of here. This thing's going down, man. So the decision was, I got to get out of here. And and fortunately for me, my parents gave me swimming lessons. And I jumped in and started swimming to the closest boat that I could find. And I tell people, I, think, I said, that's why I named the book Moments Matter, Jen," Because I realized later on, all those moments in my life were there for a reason. You know, when my parents made me get swimming lessons when I was a kid. And more importantly, when... I was in Boy Scouts going for an award called the Order of the Arrow. And it was a, basically a camping and orienteering award. And we had to do activities. One of the activities we had to do is get across a river to the next activity. And we swam. And that was a river in Ohio. And I said, maybe that was the moment that gave me the certainty to be able to do Because take this go. Because I made the decision to go. And can I probably would have made that decision. Unless I had certainty in myself that I could do it. Because one of the things you learn about leadership. And this, I think this is true. And Tony said this, and he taught me this, and I've, I've got to live it. The person with the most certainty at certain times becomes a leader. I don't care if you're the CEO of ExxonMobil. I don't care if you're the guy hanging, hanging paintings up in the middle of the night. If you give people certainty, you become a leader. And right now, people are in total uncertainty. So the people who are leaders now, there's going to be a whole new crop of leaders coming out. Because the ones who now are going to be able to give certainty to people will step up and rise and be leaders. But people look to them for certainty. And that's what happened. You know, when you, and I think one of the things you also learn in situations like this is sometimes your skill set's not the best skill set. Sometimes you got to check your own ego at the door. And I think great leaders, one of the things I talk about in leadership, is leaders have, the uh, know, the moment when they got to back up let somebody else take the lead. And there's, i I'll give you an example. There was a guy on, on the other side of the plane. He was, he was a Marines and he, he, he was giving orders, right? And he and I talked about this. He said he just started giving orders. He went in the marine mode, right? And I said, "Yeah, I said, I told him I said, that's probably exactly what people need it because they total total fear. That's what's going on right now. Because people right now, people who are giving leadership right now are people giving certainty, stepping up, doing the Zoom calls, giving people the positivity that we are going to get through. This is how we're going to get through. Is giving people game plans, and that's what part of leadership. Is
2: yeah, and I think that it's not always the person with the big title." And that's uh, a misconception and this is very much an opportunity, whereas some people may sit back and wait for the people with the titles to step up and lead. But that's not always the case. And your situation, albeit a more extreme version, but there's a classic situation, you could not expect the captain, for example, the one who had the title, if you will, right, for that situation, Mm -hmm. to call all the shots. It took several different people on that plane to step up and lead in different areas.
1: Most definitely. And I tell people there are a ton of leaders on that on that plane. Uh, It wasn't just like me doing what I did. There's so many different leaders. And it doesn't matter if you're the CEO of Exxon. It doesn't. Everybody's the same. White, black, gay, straight, you know, CEO, you know, uh, garbage guy. It doesn't matter. Everybody's the same when you're going down and when you're getting out. So that's when you find out how leaders step up, right? Because you're in a time of this. You you take what happens. This is a compact crisis. This is a six-minute flight, seven to ten minutes out. I mean, we're talking to 15 to 30 minutes, and that's when all of a sudden leaders have to step up. Because one of the things that I learned years ago, when I had the opportunity, I, I had when I was with Tony and head of security, I had the opportunity to honor, to escort a guy by the name of General Norman Schwarzkopf. He was uh, he was a gentleman who was in charge of Central Command, who was in charge of the first war in Iraq, and I had the opportunity to, to escort him when he came to speak at one of Tony's events. Unbelievable! I've never been around a four star general before in my life. And just he just commands respect, right? I mean, he's, the presence is amazing. But I asked him a question, and, and this, this is stuck with me now for over twenty years. And I asked him, I said, "Sir, am I ask you a question." He goes, "Are oh, you just asking, or you really want to know?" It's like he was just cut to the chase, right? Cut to the chase. I said, "I, I really want to." He goes, "Go ahead and ask." I said, "How did you win the war in Iraq so quickly?" I just. He said, I, "You know, he gave me this pat answer." And it's like you know, I was thinking. I've heard that before, right? He said, may I ask you another question? He goes, no one ever asked a general second question. got really intense. He goes, but go ahead. I said, how did you really want it? He looked me in the eyes. like He's like thinking, no one's ever asked me that question. So I'm going to answer it. He said, every day I would come into the theater. People would come to me with problems. Women could drive tanks in Saudi Arabia. Women had to cover their heads. They had to pray five times a day. I kept reminding the troops. How does this contribute to kicking Saddam out of Kuwait? So I, so I kept doing all, I had to remind people of the mission of kicking Saddam out of Kuwait. It wasn't going to Baghdad. It wasn't killing It's was kicking him out. And I always, uh, that really told me a lot about leadership. It's like leaders focus on the mission, the outcome. And if you can keep that focus, right? Leaders can keep on that focus and remind troops, remind their teams, this is our outcome. I'll help you get there. Sometimes I'll step back. Sometimes I'll step up. I talk about 3-2 leadership. And, you know, I talk about baseball because I love baseball. But the manager steps in on a 3-2 count because that's, that's the pitch that's going to, that going to happen. You get a hit, strike out, walk, hit, there's only, there's only two things so it's going to happen. That's when a leader steps in. So yeah, I've remembered that, Jan, for, for over 20 years. So when you give opportunity to lead, you lead. Yeah, and
2: it, you're right. It's about painting this picture of, call it the mission, the future, the vision, whatever you want to say, right? It's right. It's, and it's, delivering it with this bone-deep commitment and certainty that it's going to happen, and knowing that you don't have all the information at that point, but right. you just know that you're going in a certain direction and it's going to happen. And I think that's, that is maybe the ultimate leadership quality that people have. The, the fear and paralysis that people are feeling now and obviously the the same situation when you describe the woman on the plane. Right. What advice would you give people who are feeling that fear and paralysis right now because we've all gone through different variations of the grief cycle. And we've all had those moments where we've been sitting in front of the TV and watching the death counter on CNN and being gripped by fear. I think anybody who hasn't had at least a moment of that probably doesn't have a pulse. But how do you, mm-hmm. how do you push through that, get over that, so you can get into this positive leadership mindset?
1: Well, one of the things I've learned years ago, and I, tried, and I do every single day, is, focus on gratitude because when you have gratitude, there is no fear because you're giving of yourself. And, and I was just off the call a few minutes ago and we were talking about something I did a couple weeks ago. I didn't even think about it. Right. But I did this little video and I was at the Red Cross giving platelets. And I do a lot with the Red Cross because of my experience with the miracle on the Hudson. So I was there and they asked me to do a little PSA. I did that. But the guy who was talking to goes, you know why? He said, that was probably one of the most important things that people needed to see because you were showing even in times of a crisis, even times when they're telling you to stay home, you can still go out and give blood and give gratitude to somebody else or give platelets or give granulocytes. You can still give. And I said, I, I now I think I should have done it a different way, right? But this, I, it was all about, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go out, I'm just going to give today, right? And somebody, somebody's going to get my platelets. They're surviving cancer because of me. So I impacted somebody's life. So how can I have fear when I'm giving gratitude?
2: Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, that's that's a really good point. The guy that I see sitting before me today is not the guy that lived in that corporate mold prior to January 15th. We've all lived that corporate life, and there are many people out there today living that corporate life that you described prior to the incident, we'll call it the incident, Right. They're, they're doing what they can. They want to uh, increase their income so that they can provide for more and more for their family. You know, many of the, not, not just men, but men and women in corporate America today are on planes, you know, and we're all proud of our platinum status or whatever it is so that we can get all the upgrades and uh, we're just charging, right? And we're doing, 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 and we're doing more. There's an ego part of that with this corporate mold where we want to get more responsibility and maybe a bigger and better title. And I can relate to this because that was the person that I was um, several years ago. So, but that's not the guy that's sitting here today. So how did that incident, change you and, if you will, break you out of that mold?
1: Uh, There are a lot of, I think, little things that happen. There's a lot of small miracles, but I think, in fact, I I know the one thing that sort of shifted my mindset. There's a lot of things that shifted it, but I think there's one, one thing that sort of got my mindset thinking, I'm more than this and I need to start thinking a different way. And this is what happened. I was in the green room. We just got off Good Morning America. And there was a bunch of passengers and the crew, and we were back in the green room doing, you know, doing our thing, right? But there was one passenger who just got irate, went into an anger mode. Now, being around Tony, I've seen this happen. I, I, I've seen the pattern. So I've seen the pattern, so I just let it play out, right? See what's, Where's the thing going to go, right? So he went out, and he said, I never want to see you all ever again. Said, that's what that's why I down. And I'm sitting here thinking, a lot of people are like, what's wrong with this guy, right? I mean, we survived a plane crash. We're on national TV. I mean, you know, and I started thinking, like, that's interesting. I, I, so what, I asked a different question. But what I did is I found, found out something about it. He just he was going through a divorce, and he lost his job. And I, all of a sudden, I realized I didn't know this guy's backstory. No wonder he into it, right? He associated everything that bad in that situation that cost him his, his marriage and or his job. And I started thinking, said, how many times in my life if I thought made a judgment so quick on somebody, it maybe cost me a relationship, a job, a love relationship, something, money, I made it so quickly until I understood the back story of how it got there and I said, if I could change that one worldview, if I could just become less judgmental, it's just shifted. You know what? Maybe I don't judge people so quickly. Maybe I should ask some questions or just at least understand the situation before I judge. That changed the entire direction of my life. Because all of a sudden, I started letting everything start rolling off my back in my job. And I still had a job. I started thinking, oh, I'm much more than this now. I mean, I've survived something that very few people in the world have ever survived. But now, it's like, you know, if, if I, I, started, I would judge my company all the time. Stuff sucked, right? I mean, why are you doing this? I mean, I don't understand. All of a sudden, I started back and say, like, you know what? Maybe I don't know the whole story. And all of a sudden, I, now I'm speaking against the Supreme Court. Meeting Justice Kennedy, I'm doing things that I never because of that one world view changed. Jan become less judgmental, and that's I tell people when you when you start making that shift and you start getting that burn and you're in the corporate world, you know you're, you're something more for you in life, and you're not adding the value you need to add, and you don't know how to do it. Sort of back up and say, you know what? Maybe I start maybe I start judging things so quickly. to sort of look out and say, you know what? There's a reason behind everything. Let me start of sit back and not be judgmental. All of a sudden, things in life will start opening up. That's exactly what happened to me. So when I tell, coach people and tell people, I say, you know, the well, first thing we're we'll going to do is understand your mission. Then We're going to go through, there are some things in your job that probably need to be worked on, right? And yes, it's, it's tough to have to report to somebody every day. Yeah, it's cool when you don't have to, but there are also some benefits to it. And right now, I would hallucinate there's more people who'd want to have a job where the company is stable and, and going, out, going out by themselves because there's so, so uncertainty. And that's going to shift. When this thing is, it's going to shift the other way. Because people are now realizing, you know what? I can do this. I can do this. And it's all about, you know, giving first, adding value first before you add value to yourself. And that's what I would, that's how I, I well, am to okay.
2: This idea of judgment, I think is very uh, important right now as we're in the middle of this pandemic because people's very basic needs are being threatened, right? We're fighting over toilet paper mm-hmm. at Costco, right? We're we're afraid that we're right. not going to have enough food. I mean, some of our very basic needs that we've taken for granted all this time, now there's a question mark and add on top of that the fear of unemployment or reduced income and then the pressure of perhaps two spouses working at home with small children, everybody's in a confined space, So people are a bit more aggressive and jumpy on calls with their interaction. Mm -hmm. And I think your message is a powerful one. We all need to take a moment and understand the backstory, as you put it, what's going on in somebody's life before we judge or interact or try to sort of punch back, right? It's a take a moment, just like you did in the green room. Let it play out yeah. and recognize that there's an awful lot of pressure and tension that people are working with right now. And it is the leader that will take their teams through this crisis and beyond that will really take a moment to understand that and connect with people on a deeply human level, which I think right. is, is an opportunity for a lot of leaders to learn if they have not connected at a human level before that are going to now. That's right. What are your thoughts around, around that in terms of an opportunity for a leader now during this pandemic?
1: Oh, I think this is the time you're going to see leaders shine because one of the things, I, I was on, a, on, a, on an interview in Sydney, Australia, a few weeks ago, and, and I shared something, and it really just sort of came out. Uh, I don't know where it came from, but it seemed very apropos because we were talking about it because the pandemic there was just getting geared up in Sydney. I said, right now, I said, what are you going to find out leadership right now? Is great leaders. I just take it to a sort of an aviation sort of metaphor. And if you can, you need to aviate, you need to navigate, you need to communicate. I said, great leaders can do those three things. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, aviate, what I mean is this if you're a great leader, right now it's time to be focused execution. You, aviate means keep your plane up in the air as long as you possibly can. And right now, with, with, with people's perceptions and the lousy questions they're asking themselves, but I don't have enough money. How am I going to eat? Instead of asking more resourceful questions, how am I going to get, get this done and keep my plane personal plane in the air? So it's all about focused execution now. You can't miss steps. You got you can't miss details right now. If you need a loan for the SBA, you better be spot on. There's things you have to do is, in order to get it done. The second thing is navigate. You've kept your personal plane in the air now, right? You kept it up. It's like that day. We're fine. We got it over the bridge, but now we got to navigate. We got to get to a place. Well, the... Really resourceful leaders are being resourceful right now. It's all about resourcefulness because people's perceptions are we have a lack of resources, right? I don't have the money, the income I have. I don't have the food. Oh, by the way, I can't go out. I've got lack of resources instead of being resourceful, which means you're getting as much out of your resources as you can with the little resources you do have. And that day on the plane, I had to go into resourceful mode. It's all about resourcefulness. Even to the point where people say, well, how can you use resources when you're going out of a plane crash? So there's one resource that I always have. is my head. If I can manage that and not lose it, I can get through it. So great leaders know how to navigate. But the third thing is what you just talked about is to communicate. And great leaders now are learning how to communicate effectively. What do you mean by that? I say, well, you know, people communicate in basically three different ways, visually, auditory, kinesthetic. And if you go on a human level, you've got to really identify what that person, how that person communicates. So the first thing that I do when I talk to whether you or somebody else, how does that person communicate? And, I, and I'm a visual communicator. You see me move my hands a lot. I'm using visual words. And I'll give you a perfect example. My wife can talk for 30 minutes and not take a breath. She can just talk and talk and talk. And here I'm on the business card. I, just look, I got it. I it. 50 seconds. I got it. Right? I got the answer. I don't need the detail. Well, that doesn't work really well in a relationship. When you have a visual person, I got it, and they want to talk. Alright? And there's a lot. Of, and I'm not saying female, male. It's male, male, female. It doesn't matter. So well, once I started putting this into play, because I knew it, but I wasn't doing it. So, so I put it it into play. All of a sudden, our relationship grew to a different level because now I'm communicating more in auditory mode. I do that in the business all the time, Jay. And I go to a business meeting, I identify visual, auditory, and Now, all of a sudden, you are see me saying, I feel what you're saying, or I see what you're saying, or I hear what you're saying. And all of a sudden, I'm connecting at their level. And I'm now, communicating as a leader communicates, right, at their level. So, aviate. That's a great point.
2: Communication starts with how we communicate with ourselves, the story that we tell ourselves. See, I was paying attention at the Tony Robbins seminar. <laughs> you were.
1: It's a story people building up in their heads right right? Now, and right? it's the
2: meaning that you associate yeah. to things. And now, honestly, that was probably one of the biggest things that I got out of the um, sessions that I went to with Tony. And, and that's happening right now. And I, that's probably one of the biggest breakthroughs for me too, is this, it's the meaning that you associate to things. So you can look at this situation, this pandemic, and think, oh, this is the worst thing ever that's ever going to happen in my lifetime. And you can tell yourself it's awful and you can validate that with a whole bunch of things and activities that are happening or not happening, or you can say, this is happening it's not pretty. Yes, it's awful. However, this is how I'm going to show up in this moment. And you, right. you told yourself a story in that plane, right, when, when you stepped up. Yep. So do you remember? What was, that? What, was the, what was going on in your head?
1: Well, you hit a very key point because that's, I did a TED talk about how to grow from traumatic life experiences called PTGS, post-traumatic growth syndrome. And I talk. and this is what's going on. This is going on in my head then especially towards the end. I would say, I don't know right in the middle, I'll take an action, I'll just go, go, go. But towards the end, this sort of had to play where the meaning you attach to something produces the emotion of your life and emotion is your life. Right? So if emotion is your life, then the meaning you attach to it is the emotion. It's all these lousy meanings you're attaching. So how do you, you got to reframe the meaning. Right? So I'll give you a perfect example. You know, shortly after the play, I was doing a lot of interviews and some people were saying, I don't know why this happened to me. I mean, I just, I mean, I, I mean, I've never going to play plane crash. Things happen like this all the time to me. And I'm like, I, I'm looking at it. It's like, this is a blessing. I survived. It's given me a whole new reason to have new relationships. So the meaning I attached, right, it's totally different, right? Same incident. So that's so why I tell people like, how to grow from a traumatic life event like the pandemic is attach a different meaning and reframe the meaning. This is an unbelievable time to reconnect with people and start a new business right now. If you starting a business, I have no money. Exactly. Right now you should be planning your business. I mean, your company is having you at home. They're paying you. Write a blueprint out, right? I mean, you're given the opportunity now. We're given the opportunity to be with our families. They're like, I don't want to be with my family. You know, I've had too much of my family, right? And I understand that. I, I got it. But you know what? I miss so much time with my family all this 25 years. This is an opportunity to sort of connect with my daughter, who's now in college, right? The two of them are out. So it's, it go, it, you're exactly right. It's about the meaning you attach to something. People are attaching lousy meanings, right? Yeah. And my goal is to help them reframe their meetings to something, maybe a different perspective and put them in a different state. Yes. Right. And then
2: once you have, once you've got that thing straight, you got the story straight in your head and you know how you're going to look at this pandemic and you're going to see a way out and you're going to inspire others. The energy that you bring to that engagement, uh, when I'm talking about this during my keynotes, I tell people you have the power to change the room. So use it. And you can use that power. And we all have it, as you well know. And you can use that power on Zoom, on a video call, when the cameras are Definitely. on, because people can feel that energy coming through the, the screen. They can feel that level of commitment. They can they can see the authenticity. You know, your gut tells you when you're talking to somebody who's authentic or not. And I have to believe that. In that plane, I don't know whether people were thinking about whether you were authentic or not, but they were, you know they they were they were doing it. They were stepping up and they were doing it.
1: Yeah, I think you, you see the rawness when you're going through something like that. You see it down, You see the bare bones of people. And they, and, you, and you know going through a Tony seminar, everybody's got you know, six human needs. Everybody goes to their primary need. And when you're in survival mode, like we're in, some people are now, they go to the primary need. Some people need certainty some people need significance right some people need contribution so that's one of the things that in your mindset you're going you know I, I so I knew my my the need I had right thing I mean very candid there's probably a lot towards certainty and significance I mean but that day it flipped whereas it really shifted toward contribution and connection because if you watch the movie Sully, and I tell people to sell time there's one part in that movie that resonates with me there's a lot of resonate but there's one thing that, that the captain of the ferry said, no one dies today. And that was like an unspoken mantra, that no one is going to die today. So it's all about, you know, contribution. We're going to get to each other. We're going to connect with each other. And, and all of a sudden, people's modes and priorities shifted. Instead of survival, we're going to make sure everybody's taken care of, which is a whole different level of connection.
2: Yes. And then when you say, when you say that, you know, that somebody actually verbalized it, somebody said with certainty. Nobody's going to die today, yep. right? And that's yep. what leaders need to do now in this pandemic is to say, we're going to get that's through right. this. We're going to get through this. I don't have all the answers, some level of vulnerability there, but I am certain that we're going to get through this.
1: Um, yeah, it's all about faith. Faith is right. Believing is something that you can't see. So I had that question the other day, Jan. I said, you know what? I said, one thing I've hung my hat on right now. Maybe I'm hanging a hat on something. But I said, you know, the same God, the same Daniel in that pit, is going to save us. So, and there's one thing that's certain, and I believe there's a greater being, and that's certain because that person, that being has been there for thousands, thousands, millions of years. There's no more certainty than that. So, if you believe, if you believe, which I do, there's a greater being, the same one was there, it's the same one that's here. And there's a reason behind this. And he will, if you believe and have faith in something you don't see, he will get through this. But you gotta be smart. Because I had a kid the other day, I one of the things I'm doing today Every day, Janice, checking in on five people. I right? just called five people. I called a young man last week. He's in Canada. He saw me speak last year at an offense. Uh, and I was just checking in on a dude. And he's probably 25, 26, right? Called him up. He didn't, he didn't remember me. So I started talking to him. I said, hey, I said, what, what are you doing right now? He goes, Mr. Sanderson, get real. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. I said, so that's your first problem. I said, now is not the time to get real. Now is the time to get intelligent. And I think I startled him. You know, but I had to speak in his vernacular. I was like, no, getting real is not the time for me. you. gotta got be smart right now. You can't miss the details, right? Because you're on Zoom If people pick up on this. I mean, you know, people pick up on who really does care. Are, are you calling with autism, with vulnerability and authenticity and congruency? Or are you calling to get something from me?
2: Yeah, and people can see that. You can, you can sense that.
1: You know, I think like, those
2: people that think that they're fooling others. You know, you're only fooling yourself because people can see right through that.
1: Yep. And now's not the time to be stunning. There's, I mean, yeah, you put yourself, now's the time to go into that mode of, of how can I add value to you first? Totally. And that's why I was calling the young man. Up. He was totally taking a back chance. He didn't remember me from But some guy like me, I mean, I'm not blowing my own horn, but I, you know, I've been in the media. I've done things, right? Yeah. And this guy calls me out of the blue. Right? And re- I remember this young man from the gig in Toronto. And when he said get real, all of a sudden, of a sudden he was like, that's your problem. You think everything's got to be real. Right now, nothing's real. <laughs> so, But you got to be smart. Right now, you got to pull that intelligence resource out. Right? And everything you do is like, is this a smart move or not? And how am I going to invest my money? Because I had this conversation with my daughter. She's spending money like it's going out of style. So she's home. I said, Tori, I said, you got to get smart right now. I said, you got to cut this off, right? Or you're going to be broke and you ain't coming home, right? So you don't have any options left, right? Time to get smart right now.
2: Let's talk about control. We all thought that we had control over our lives before the pandemic hit. And then it hit. And then we all thought that we had lost control but in reality, we never really had control to begin with. It was just an illusion. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Uh, I, I would say that give the example back on the plane because when you're in a plane, uh, you think you got control, but you realize you have no control whatsoever. I mean, it's you know you don't fly in the plane. The only thing you controls your mind. So one thing learn, especially when you go through a situation on a plane, that's in a challenging situation. Is that the only thing you control is your mind? Because you can't fly in the plane, you can't get up, you can't. So I agree. Right now, our, our lives, right now, we have no control and or we're certainty. There's no certainty or control right now. And so people, right now, when they go in that mode, they get they get flustered because they never they always thought they had control, but in reality, there's so many other forces on the outside that have control. So you better go in the mindset of being able to have variety right now because you know this is. This is a great learning experience. You know, I have no. I'm gonna learn things that I never thought that I learned. So, I would say that by coaching the people, especially leaders, leaders will be able to shift quickly. You know what? This is a great learning experience for me. I have no control with. I don't have control over the doctors, ventilators, what's going to happen. My getting my getting my, uh, my check, my uh, you know my stimulus check. I have no control. All I control is you know how I react to things right now. If I react positively, things will work out positively for me. So I'm gonna be positive.
2: Yeah. You know, where I see this playing out, Dave, is uh, perhaps micromanagers, right? So you get the more of the, not necessarily command and control, but the micromanagers and the people that have resisted this flexible work from home kind of situation, right? And they've resisted it because they need to see their people. They want to see their people in the office and they want to make sure that they're working because they have this fear of letting go of delegating, and there's so many, so many issues behind that. But now they have no choice. So they have to deal with this. So they have to deal with that fear, whether they like it or not. And I kind of like
1: that. Yeah, I, I, I'll give you a real life experience that I've realized a couple of weeks ago. Because um, one of the things I've been really focused on is helping people get masks. Because I have a network now that I have no people who can make that happen. So I put myself out there and just made the connections for helping hospitals get masks. That's great. They all need masks, right? And because an average hospital may have 10,000 nurses, say, a nice size hospital. Three shifts, that's 10,000 masks a day. Seven days a week, that's 70,000 masks for nurses a week. That's a lot of masks. So you make that happen, right? So you get to that bridge, and you've been in supply chain, you know this. It, you have to, it's okay? You get to that bridge. I got it. It's all checked out. We're good to go. And now I got to do 15 layers of paperwork. But you got an entrepreneur on this side who's figured it out. Now I've got masks and I'll get you the mask in 48 hours. You can have them, but you got to cut through the paperwork. Right? So all of a sudden you got this, you, you can make it happen. And they want control because supply chain people and they want control. But this is how we process. But the process is the wild, wild west. The process doesn't play right now, which is really uncertain for a lot of people in business. Like you said, people are home. Are they really working or not working? Hell, I'm working three times harder now at home. So I I, I tell people right now, one of the things you're learning is you've got to be flexible right now. Because if you have a need, and hospitals have a need for PPE, but if you need five, ten layers of of sign-off, no wonder wonder they're all going to the government. Or by the way, give you an example. So you have a celebrity over here. You have somebody in country music. He said, you know what? I want to buy masks from the children's hospitals. I'll write a check for, you know, $500,000 and we'll get them, you know, 250,000 masks. Kind of check. All of a sudden, it's like, how they do it? Because they made it happen. They took action. They didn't have to go through Because they do not understand Wild Wild West is here. Right? It is. And if you're and if you're a supply, and you were in a supply chain, you know this. you got to go through procurement and sign-offs and POs and all the different levels, Right. And you have people dying and you're white. Yes.
2: And that's why this is again, an opportunity. So to your 15 levels of paperwork, when it's a life and death situation, which it really is, and you decide to lead and step up and make a decision. to either either say, you know what, no more 15 layers of paperwork, we're going to do this, 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 and this. Because you have a sense of the real business needs of what you need to satisfy, and you can cut through all of that. Then after this crisis is over, you can say, huh, you know what? We did that in a crisis mode, so why can't we do that on a normal day-to-day basis? This could be an enormous opportunity to reduce a lot of the waste in corporate America today. It's, it's very important what we do today during the crisis. Of course it is. But it's equally important what we do with the information that we learn and how we apply it after the crisis.
1: Most definitely. I mean, you look at these, the ventilators that are going on right now, right? All of a sudden, New York needs 14,000 ventilators. can they didn't, but they did. So what happens? People re engineer their thought processes, right? And went into Ford and GM and some of these other plants, and now they're making ventilators. Because they can shift quickly for the government process, right? Process is broken right now. And, I, and process is important. I'm not discounting because I talk about process saves lives. there's one thing that I talk about. But you're going to learn exactly like you said. These people are going to relook at this at the end and say, you know what? We cut through all the red tape. We got the supplies. We handle it very quickly. And we probably saved them a few bucks while doing it because you don't have to do all this stuff, right? Maybe we should, yeah. Maybe look a different way to do business, and all of a sudden we can speed up our how we do that and be more profitable. A
2: lot of those processes were put in place because somebody had a problem way back when, so they put a band aid fix in there, and then it became the way of life and the way of doing business, and everybody adopted it, and very few people challenged it until now.
1: And so let me finish the side story. So, an entrepreneur who's got the mask. Says, okay, you got a problem, right? You got 15 layers of paperwork. I'm going to cut through your problem. What we'll do this. Well, all you got to do now is put the money in escrow. We don't touch it until the supply is delivered. So it gives you time to do your 15 layers of paperwork, right? So the entrepreneurs thinking, I'll fix it for you. And then the process people are going, Well, I can't do it that way. And all of a sudden, it's like you're sitting there going, You're pulling your hair. I don't have any hair left. And it's like you're going, I fixed your problem for you. Two levels. I got you the product, and I'll give you a way that you got total coverage. That you're not, you don't have any, any risk at all. You put it in escrow, scroll, I'm not going to touch it. And you still can't do it. You're you're costing people's lives now. Yeah, yeah, it's a right? different
2: way of thinking.
1: Got, that's right. It's a different way of thinking. So go back to a question you asked, you know, a couple minutes ago. So things coming out, entrepreneurs are gonna be coming out of this with different mindsets, they're going to see this, and you know what? I've figured out ways to fix things in ways I never thought I could fix them. I'm going to do this on my own. So staying with, staying with GM. Yep. Right? Or staying with staying with the hospital. I can fix it. And I'm going to fix it because I know both ends. I'm going to fix it. So now you're going to see all these entrepreneurs coming out because they, they figured out the problem and how to fix it in a different way.
2: Yeah, I, I love that you're seeing people rise up to this, whether it's, an entrepreneur, whether it's a leader within an organization. And I was on a call yesterday, there's a young woman who was pretty good at her job, you know, but maybe not at the forefront of the activity in the, in the company, and she was receiving all kinds of accolades from other people on the team, because in this time of crisis, she stepped up and you saw what this woman had in terms of leadership ability. And that might not have come out or might have taken years to come out. So that's why my message has been over the last several weeks, get in there, step up and lead now. Now is the time to do it. And don't, don't look to the corporate rulebook because it's not there. There is no
1: corporate rulebook. It is
2: out the window. This is the perfect time.
1: That's right. I think you see people who have been maybe a little scared or work have are so focused on you know the situation and the process of okay I've got to do this 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 and this and then I'll be a leader instead of just saying you know what and that's what the thing about millennials I'm I'm learning millennials just do it they figure and they'll figure it out because they're very technical, they're very smart but they don't understand their mission or purpose so therefore they can't be really a leader yet because they don't understand what they're going for but they can fix stuff so that's the gap right now millennials yeah right see? so so. This is, these are our next leaders coming in, so we got to get them focused on. All right, this, we got to teach you some process, but I like what you're doing on this side too because you you just got through the crap, you know. Because you know this in the corporate world. You know, when I grew up, you know, 40 years ago, you would never ever think about calling maybe a vice president up, right? Without, and now these kids are calling the CEO and say, "You know what? I, I need two weeks off. I why would you talk to him? Now you, you can. I'll just talk to you." They just cut through all the crap, right?
2: They do, and I've seen that. In fact, um, I have a reverse mentoring relationship with a young woman, Danielle Leone, and she did that to me. In the, at the beginning of our relationship, it was not a reverse mentoring relationship; it was a traditional mentoring relationship where the more senior person, you know, is supposed to impart wisdom to the younger person. Well, that's that's not that's not an equal relationship right so we we flattened that out and we made it an equal relationship where i opened up the communication channels and i've learned probably more from her than she's actually learned from me yep. but she would question me and and you can tell when people are coming from a good place right she just genuinely wanted to know and wondered why we were doing things a certain way but you're right, Dave, when we grew up in the corporate world, I would never have done that. and I love, love, love that about this generation that's in the workplace right now.
1: Yep, I agree., I, I, yeah, I, I've seen that a couple of times in the companies, and I'd be like an Oracle, but Oracle's got such a you know a, a young base of employees, they're just used to it. They don't care. They'll call the CEO right up and say, "You know what, I got an idea." And they, some, some dude just came up with an idea on how to get this, this software so they can test, do all the testing for this stuff very quickly on your, on your, on your, eyes, on your iPhone. And I'm like, that would never come with somebody my age, right? Some kid is 25 years old, figured yeah. it out. Right. So I agree. It's a, it's a wild, wild west now. It's different. And if you don't open your mind, you're going to be left way behind.
2: Talking about opening your mind, I'd like to get yeah. inside your head a little bit more perhaps on a more personal level. After the incident, when you wake up every day, every morning, what are some of the thoughts that go through your head? And how do you start your day? And I really want to take this into the, how do you lead yourself? Because you and I both know that you can't lead others until you know how to lead yourself. So how does Dave Sanderson lead himself? And let's start with how you wake up in the morning. Could you share some of that with us?
1: First thing I do is I did a quick prayers. thank you for the next day. I mean, once you go through something like this, you just realize you're just lucky to wake up the next day. But, you know, one of the things that happened to me, which I actually wrote this in a, for an upcoming book, I wrote a chapter in an upcoming book, and I talk about this, um, which I never really revealed before. But one of the things that came out of this situation, and this is, answer your, this is going to answer your question, but give me yeah, a minute. Of is that I had high blood pressure. I never knew that. I, they realized that that night in the hospital. My blood pressure was out of control, um, and I had to promise to go back and get my doctor and check it. So I got checked out. She goes, "You yeah, got high blood pressure, right?" And so she's like, "You got to go on medicine." I'm like, no, I'm not going go on medicine, right? I'll fix it. I'll fix it. Uh, I couldn't fix it, right? I didn't have the t- but you know what? Also, I start realizing, all you know, if I don't get this under control, I'm not. It doesn't matter what I survived a plane crash." So the long answer is I did go on blood pressure medicine, which but I had to start taking my body and my mindset. It's like, you know what? I gotta start taking care of me first. So the first thing in the morning after I say my little prayer is I always work out first. And, you know, if people say, well, why do I I get before forty every morning. Because, you know, I gotta get my mind right. I gotta get my body right. If I don't if I'm not right when I walk in to do my business, then no, I'm not being able to serve anybody because one of the things that one of Tony's people and I sat down one day, her name was Carol McCormick. We sat down, and she said, You need to get your mind right. She said, Think about it this way. He said, I, I, you know, I value myself first so I can value other people even more financially, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. And I started, we wrote this down. He said, You just got to memorize this. You got to put this in your brain first thing in the morning. I value myself first so I can value other people even more, which presupposes I always already, already value them. So that's why I sort of go in the morning. That's why I say to myself. So I got to value myself first. I do that first. so I can value you even more. Whether it's money wise, spiritually, physically, emotionally, relationships. And that's how I start my day. Every day. And my wife, I'm like over 250 straight days. My wife thinks I'm crazy. Right? She's still in bed. But before she even gets up, I've already got it all done. And I'm, I'm rocking and rolling. And impacting people. Because as you know, being in the, in the supply chain, or especially in a corporate environment, uh, Everybody just doesn't work in Eastern time. The people in Europe, people in Australia, people in California. So the people you serve and I serve are all over the world. We're in a global world now. So I've got to be ready to go for those folks in Australia who are getting ready to go into bed and those people in England who are just going to lunch. I've got to be able to serve.
2: Is that a change, Dave, from how you would start your day before the incident? What was how Most would you definitely. normally start your day before the incident, your normal in your copper job?
1: Roll out, brush my teeth, go get something to eat and go. Yeah. Right? And and I did that for years. No wonder I was so overweight, right? I didn't move I, I didn't move a lot, less, right? So I had to change the mindset. And and I think leaders have to do because you have to lead yourself first, like you said. You have to lead yourself first because I'm one of the big things I'm focused on this year, which is really now challenged and strained, is showing congruency. You know, I'm I'm healthy, I'm fit, I got my finances, which is now suspect, squared away. I got my relationship. So I want to show people when I go on stage that yes, I am congruent. Whatever I'm saying, I'm living it right now. So you can't you can't dig at me. You can go for it, but I'll, I'll shoot it back. Is I, are you up at four forty in the morning doing what I'm doing to get up? The people say, "Well, how do you get to be on stage like you are?" I said, "Because you put the time in, right? You do all these things. You know, so this doesn't happen overnight. You know, Zig Ziglar. I went to Zig Ziglar. You know, read his stuff. It's like he did his first seventy-five of this for nothing, so he could hone his mind and his technique. Because one thing Tony taught me right after the plane incident is, when you go on stage, you got to speak from the heart." He said, never, you never see him on stage with notes. I don't go on stage with notes. I come from the heart. And if I'm not if I, I, I'm not congruent, I can't come from the heart. So it all comes down to congruency. And
2: that starts with how you start your day. And I couldn't agree more. I'm a huge supporter of getting your mind in the right place in the morning. And I didn't used to be, because much like you, I've spent, a large portion of my life get up in the morning. I mean, I remember years ago I would get up in the morning have a cup of coffee and a cigarette. Yeah, <laughs> How awful yeah, is that, right? Behavior. I mean, that's terrible. We think yeah. about that now. We cringe. I hope my daughter isn't listening to that. But um, that's that's what I did. And I worked in uh, manufacturing, and I would go straight to the plant, and off you go, right? And you'd work 12, 14 hours, whatever you needed to do. And it took a while for me to understand the magic in the morning, that early morning, and prior to the pandemic, I get up at four thirty and I like a five AM workout class and then I spend a little bit of time. I don't know that I would call it meditation, but really thinking about my mindset and getting my mindset in the right place. And then I need food and then I, I and then I'm off and running. And I've been asking a lot of my guests lately that same question. And I will tell you that there's a I, I see a thread running through here that successful people Are doing that. They get up in the morning, they get their head in the right place. Everybody's got a slightly different version of how they do that with a mix of exercise. And uh, one thing that I learned that I enjoyed from Tony was the priming exercise, because I think that, you know, that does a lot of things, right? Because you cover gratitude, you cover intention, you get your body moving, you get the blood flow going. So I think there is a lot to that. And people have an opportunity now that their routine has been broken right? It's gone. It's broken. So you can look at that and go, oh, my routine's broken. Or you can say, hey, my routine's broken. Guess what? I get a chance to develop a new one. And you can start to push all these new habits into a routine that works for you. It takes 66 days, right, to form a new habit. So start, start it now. This is a great opportunity to do something like that.
1: I agree. I'll, I'll even go maybe the opposite direction. And then my wife said, why you, why you get up at 4.40 in the morning when now you can just sort of sleep eating? Because I said, you know what? It's a discipline, right? I truly really believe in discipline. If you got a discipline and you're, you're, it's, it's really serving you and serving the greater good, stay with the discipline. Mine is getting up and getting myself in that mode. Because, you know, when this thing starts coming back together for everybody, at least I'll have, I, I've stayed in discipline. People will know that, you know what? He did walk his talk. He got through this. Here's a model. Because one of the things I talk about is references, right? Or references in our lives, and and that's one of the things I talk about when people are coming out here. So one of the things I'll share with people, one of the things I will coach them on, is this is going to be a super reference for how how you go handle problems. And people, somebody said, well, "What do you mean?" I said, "Well, let me give you a, let me give you a story. It happened exactly where I'm sitting right here, exactly where I'm sitting. I got a phone call from my wife. I uh, had some neighbors down the street that needed help getting their TV working." And they were two older ladies, and I don't know about you, Jay, but, you know, I grew up in an era where you took care of your neighbors, especially when they're two older ladies, right? just take care of your neighbors. So I went down there helping fix your TV. big deal. Okay, got it done. And they said, would you stay for milk and cookies? I said, I love milk and cookies. We don't like milk and cookies, right? And especially from two older ladies, you could probably bake, right? So, all right, they're going to get milk and cookies. Now I'm sitting in their parlor, right? and I'm looking at some books, and they're pictures of World War II. I love World War II. I love history. So I'm like, this is really cool, right? So I'm sitting here to look at this, and they walk in. I said, hey, where'd you get this? This is unbelievable. They said we were there. And they all said, well, look at their sleeves and show me the numbers down their arms. See, they always wear long sleeves. And they were—they survived the concentration camp, football. They survived this thing. Their family died. And their next-door neighbor, Miss Joanne, and I had this discussion after they passed on. And I told her about this because she had the same discussion. No one knew they were concentrating. So I said, please let me record your story. you were in your 70s. They said, no, but for two hours, they told me the story how I survived the concentration camp. So I came back, sitting right where I, was, I called Cindy, who was working with me on the book. I said, this blew my mind. I said, these ladies lived down there. I said, they survived one of the most horrific situations in the history of the world and survived and thrived. They lived together the rest of their lives because they lost their entire family and never wanted to be a part of it. And I said, how many people in this world, me included, complain about do they something happens to them, they complain? It's like right now, people are complaining about this pandemic, one of the most horrific situations in the history of the world. You're right? These ladies survive. So what I've been doing lately, this is what a coaching I would give to people, is if you're in a situation or you find somebody in that situation, say, you know what, give me a second. Let's get somebody on the phone. Let me talk. I know somebody in Ethiopia. We're going to talk to somebody in Ethiopia right now. I get him on the phone and say, tell me about your day. We'll get them on the phone and they can tell about their day they had to go get water, right? And I had this happen to a lady who survived the avalanche the Nepal several years ago. She's one of the four survivors. And I got this phone call out of the blue. They said, you got to talk to this lady because she won't come out of this cabin. She's up in the middle of Ontario. She won't come out of this cabin. She so said, I'll call her. I'll talk to her. And she's kept telling me how bad it was, right? Why did she let and everybody else die? That was your mindset. And I said, I said, I told her, I said, listen, one of the first interviews I had after I got home was with a, with a TV station in Montreal asking the same question. Why did you live and there was other people in Buffalo died? I said, well, I told him, I said, it wasn't my time. I said, you got to change your meaning. So let me, let me talk, let you talk to somebody who survived something worse, 9-11. And I got her on the phone and talking to somebody because I knew a lot of people in New York, right? So I had him talk to this, his, his name was Mike. He was a first responder in New York City. Right now on, if I get somebody in that situation, Dan, I said, let me tell you somebody, give you a proper perspective. Right now, if I am in a leadership position, leadership to give people a proper perspective. This, this will happen. This is going to happen. It is happening. We will survive. And this is how we're going to survive. When we come out, we're going to have a whole new skill set. And you're going to have a hell of a story to tell somebody. is that you survive the truth? Right? So the next time, i tell them college kids that. Because college kids, I'm not going to be able to graduate. I said, listen, you survived the pandemic. So when you get out in the real world and something happens, you go, there, hey, i survived the pandemic. This too shall pass.
2: And you can learn from a guy like my friend Dave Sanderson and really take your experience to heart and have it change your life or not. The choice is yours, right?
1: Uh, exactly right. Some of the passengers came to me later and said, why are you doing this? Why are you not speaking? Why are you? Because I said, you know, you guys I said you had the same opportunity. I, and as Tony teaches it all, comes to choices. I made a choice. I was going to go serve and use this for greater good and hopefully help people through my story and my experience in leadership to help them in their time of leadership. I said, you chose not to. And I don't judge you for that. You could, But I, I encourage, there's 155 people on that plane, I said, so there's 155 stories of leadership. This one, we chose to, some people yes, didn't.
2: Yeah, that's right.
1: It all comes down to choices.
2: Well, I am very glad that you made the choice to do what you're doing and to share your knowledge and your leadership guidance and wisdom with others. It's truly remarkable. And I would like to say, Dave Sanderson, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast, and I wish you all the very best.
1: Thank you very much. I'm honored to be here. And I hope the folks who are listening to this, they've got one piece of wisdom out of it, so they can take their life and create their own flight
2: plan. Excellent. Thank you very much, Dave.
0: If you enjoyed listening to this podcast and you found something of value that will help you on your quest for your Gravitas, then please share with your friends and colleagues and subscribe. Visit us at GravitasDetroit.com to find out more.